0: folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am very happy and honored to share a conversation that I had with Ken Wilber regarding his exciting new book, The Religion of Tomorrow, which I find, as with all of Ken's work, to be just magnificent and really has delivered me into a bigger world. That's what Ken's work has done for me. And I know that many of you know and appreciate Ken as much as I do, but for those of you who are new to integral theory, Ken Wilbur has been the leading light of the integral movement since he published his first book in 1973 called Spectrums of Consciousness. He was 23 years old at the time, and the book is still a classic. And in the last 45 years, Ken has established his position as the leading integral philosopher on the planet, having written, I think this is his 25th book. And he is also to be found with his wonderful, I think, sparkly uh, audio and video presentations on integral life. And um, I'm happy to be associated with Ken and to be his student. So here I am being his student. And in The Religion of Tomorrow, his new book, Ken, first of all, traces the history of religion in his big picture way, and particularly the great traditions of Christianity, Buddhism, the Greeks, and the glorious gifts that they all hold for humanity, as well as their blind spots and where they're stuck in terms of helping humanity to move forward. What I found most interesting about the book personally, is the explanation that Ken gives of the higher stages of the development of the spiritual line. So, he talks a lot about spirituality at the teal, um, early integral stage of development, at turquoise, the more mature level, the ever-increasing sense of wholeness, the um, ever-dissolving, hardened ego identity. And he also maps out third tier, where... Our identity expands beyond this temporal mind and body and, again, shows not only the great gifts but the pitfalls and shadows. And I I want to have this territory explained. That's where I want to be working and am on a good day. And nobody explains it better than Ken Wilber, nobody makes maps better than Ken Wilber, and Even with that said, we go on here for an hour, it's mostly Ken talking, uh, and he's still just scratching the surface. So, uh, listen to the interview and, and, and absorb, and I really encourage you to also buy the book, The Religion of Tomorrow, The Future, A Vision for the Future of the Great Traditions, More Inclusive, More Comprehensive, and More Complete. So, I start this episode by asking Ken to give us some of the main themes of his new book. And so here's Ken Wilbur starting there. I'm going to share the screen and here we go.
1: It, it covers a, a, a lot of areas. Um, we can start with um, a couple that are just sort of very kind of straightforward. Um, and, and this has, I mean, we sort of go back to the, um, the original creation of, of, of most of the great traditions uh, themselves. Uh, most of them, uh, their foundational texts are a thousand to 2,000 years old Uh, During that period, we knew nothing about atoms, molecules, cells. We thought the earth was flat. We thought the sun circled the earth. Uh, Slavery was completely acceptable, including every major religion on the planet. Um, Christian and Buddhist monasteries had slaves. Uh, St. Paul recommends that slaves obey their masters and and worship Jesus Christ. Um, women were treated as uh, secondhand citizens, if that. Um, the Greek father who binds his sons has every right to, because they're his property. Uh, and and it, it just it it kind of goes on like that in in that whole era of that kind of ignorance. The the great religious texts were, were written. And so part of the question is simply, Well, I mean, we've learned a fair amount you know, in the last 2,000 years. Um, and so still keeping some of the really you know, important breakthrough discoveries. And a lot of the great religions uh, you know, existed at a time, again, about 2,000 years ago, when human evolution had reached a point where it was starting to investigate um higher states of consciousness and a lot of extremely important uh uh, discoveries um were made about that we don't want to toss those out so i'm certainly not Mm -hmm. in favor of that but the question is what else have we learned um about uh human transformation for example and what have we learned that if the original writers of the great traditions knew about it, they would almost certainly include in in their foundational texts. So one of those, as an example, is we talked about states of consciousness, and states of consciousness are these sort of first-person, direct, immediate experiences. When you have a, a state of consciousness, you know it. I mean, if you have a a sense that you're one with the entire world in love and bliss, you very much are aware of that. You're directly um, in your awareness and you know it. Mm -hmm. And yet there's another type of, well, and also most of the the world's great traditions that um, maintain that there were higher states of consciousness, particularly ones where you could have a, a sort of a, a direct unity experience mm-hmm. with ultimate reality itself and, and the entire manifest uh, universe, for, for that matter. And that uh, was referred to with things like ultimate unity consciousness or non-dual uh, awareness. The Sufis call it the supreme identity because it's the identity with the deepest part of you and ultimate reality itself and so um for the great traditions that followed those types of developments most of them left uh maps of of these meditative states and the stages of meditation or the stages of contemplation that you would go through as you uh, explored these higher states and and um, there's a general agreement uh, among all the all the great traditions that some of the very highest states, these ultimate unity consciousness, um, are disclosing realities that the average person just isn't aware of. Mm-hmm. The average person is is like in more to sort of existing in a kind of dream world, a sort of uh, an illusory. Uh, condition where they're not directly aware of their own truest and deepest reality they're not aware of this ground of all being that is the source and suchness of, of their own condition in the entire universe um, itself and if you look at if you take all of these maps of the stages of meditation that um, the various traditions came up with uh, and you put them all together there's a, there's a sort of general kind of family resemblance uh, among them and uh, some researchers have actually um, done specific research on the stages of development um, and compared different traditions and, and, and demonstrated that there is a, a certain general similarity among the stages of meditative development um, that the different traditions recognize. So, um, somebody, for example, like Daniel, uh, P Brown, um, has, um, he started his research by looking at, at 14 root texts of the Mahamudra tradition in original language um, and ended up finding five or six major stages they went through. He ended up comparing those stages with Patanjali's Yoga Sutras mm-hmm. and also with Theravadan Buddha Gosha's um, Path of Freedom and the stages that they outlined as well as certain Christian mystics and essentially found the same sort of five or six major uh, meditative Stages uh, of development. And so we've known about those, and humanity has sort of written those down, if you will, actually made maps of them. They're actually texts on it. Actually, when you sign up uh, in one of these practices, you would actually go through these meditative uh, stages Mm -hmm. on your way to an ultimate enlightenment, or awakening, or metamorphosis, or satori, uh, and so on.
0: Okay, so far, Ken has talked about the classic definition of enlightenment, state enlightenment, waking up, meditative enlightenment, culminating in the sense of oneness and unity. The other kind of enlightenment is the enlightenment of growing up, of moving up the stages of development. So again... State development, waking up. Stage development, growing up. And here's Ken on the latter.
1: But it it turns out that there's another type of development that human beings undergo. And this was not really discovered until about 100 years ago.
0: Hmm.
1: And this is a very... A different type of development, it turns out to be just as important, uh, in some ways more important in terms of of what it's actually doing um, in human awareness. And these are, um, in a sense, sort of stages of a, a kind of world view or an interpretive grid that human beings use. And the reason these are only discovered about 100 years ago is that these are fairly complex. This is a a fairly um, difficult... Um, aspect of, of human um, being and and existence, and so it 's unlike these meditative states that are first person direct immediate experiences, and that if you 're having a meditative state, you know exactly what that is these This other developmental path is is working with something much more like um, let 's say grammar. Uh, everybody who's brought up in a particular language speaking culture ends up speaking that language fairly accurately. Uh, they put subject and verb together correctly. They use uh, adjectives and adverbs correctly. And, in other words, they follow the rules of grammar quite, quite accurately, quite correctly. But if you ask any of them to write down what those rules are, virtually nobody can do it most people don't even know uh and you can't see those rules of grammar by introspecting so even if you you know spend a lot of time meditating looking within introspecting still we can do it right now we can introspect right now and there's there's no way at all that you know the rules of grammar show up and this actually turns out to be what these stages of development of these sort of third person grammar rules are like and it, again this took a very long time to discover um, again because you can't see them looking within what you have to do here is you have to ask people specific times, types of questions that relate to which intelligence you happen to be researching and many people know that we don't have just one type of intelligence, that uh, so-called cognitive intelligence, that's often measured with something like an IQ test. But we have maybe a of about a dozen, uh, multiple intelligences. And each of these, uh, when you're born... And you have, well, in addition to cognitive intelligence, there's emotional intelligence, there's linguistic intelligence, there's interpersonal intelligence, there's aesthetic intelligence, uh, and so on. And so as long as we're careful about it, we can use some of the terms that we use with Gepser and apply those to these stages of, of spiritual intelligence and so we'll find that spiritual intelligence does indeed go through um, about six or so fowler found six stages um and those are in, in, indeed an archaic stage a magic stage a mythic stage Fowler actually called it mythic literal because that's what it does. It takes myths and treats them as if they're literally true. So Moses literally did part uh, the Red Sea. And Lot's wife really was turned uh, into a pillar of salt and so on. Um, and, so, and then there's a rational um, version of spiritual intelligence. And then there's a pluralistic version of spiritual intelligence. And then there's an integral version of spiritual intelligence with possibly higher stages um coming down the road but what what this tells us is that no matter how profound a waking up experience that we have so you can have a very very profound satori or enlightenment experience or awakening experience but you'll interpret that experience according to your spiritual intelligence and that means you will interpret it according to the stage of Development of your spiritual intelligence that you're at so if you have this experience of um, Being so one with everything um, In love and bliss Um, You'll interpret that in magic terms. If you're at the magic stage, you'll interpret it in mythic literal terms if that is the stage you're at. You'll interpret it at rational, sort of world-centric terms if if you're at that stage of development. If you're at a pluralistic stage, you'll be much more sort of multicultural, um, ecologically sound, um, postmodern type of interpretation. And if you're at an integral stage, you'll have a sort of a a, an overview and a sense that all of these stages are important and that you can't really delete any of them uh, if for no other reason than they're each stage is in, in an overall human growth and development. Mm-hmm. And so it, just as you go from atoms to molecules to cells to organisms, you can't go from atoms to cells and skip molecules. And it's the same way with these stages of, of human development, they're the products of an overall evolution that humanity has gone through going back um, uh, close to a million years and these stages have become an, an inherited part of uh, human um, makeup and so we have all these stages uh, fundamentally available to us now the the point uh, and, and And the reason I took a, a fair amount of time sort of going into this whole notion of the growing up process that happens with multiple intelligences, and why that's different from a waking up process that occurs with states of consciousness and these the growing up is occurring with what we call structures of consciousness. States are first person immediate experiences that's why you know. If you have a state experience, you you know you're having it and and you've got a a real good sense of what it is. But structures, again, are like rules of grammar and they're more third-person interpretive grids, so you really can't see them when you introspect or when you look within. But if you see the profound difference that these structures of growing up will have on how you interpret a waking up in some cases it's night and day, so you can see that even with the same waking up experience, how you actually interpret that experience changes profoundly according to which stage of growing up you're at yeah. now if if the original writers of the foundational texts of the great Religions, the original um, writers that, that wrote the Buddhist uh, texts uh, on, on uh, mindfulness training and so on. If they knew about these differences, there is no way they wouldn't include them. They would be all over this. Right. I mean, if you're going to have um, these types of profoundly different interpretations of your enlightenment experience, and if, if those interpretations just get wider and wider and bigger and bigger and in a sense better and better, well, of course you're going to want to talk about that. The Buddhists would be training people not only in how to wake up, they'd be training them in how to grow up. Because what you don't want is producing people that are an ethnocentric stage. of development. You're producing um, enlightened Nazis if, right. if you do that. That's not helping. And it's certainly nothing that deserves to be called um, waking up, a true waking up or true enlightenment uh, or or true uh, great liberation. So the simple fact that humans only discovered these growing up stages about 100 years ago guarantees that not a single religious system anywhere in the world is aware of this. So, if they're aware of something, they're aware of waking up, and most of the great uh, religious traditions have some branch or other that focuses on contemplative development, meditative uh, development. And then some of them, well, all of them are also at an interpretive level in their own in their own growing up. and so one of the things you find with Gautama buddha for example is that his main stage of growing up tended to be orange rational world-centric um, universal so when buddha talks about his path first of all he has a path of waking up and he'll say that he'll say uh, what i have to teach you is simply how to become awake but he explains all this in very very rational terms His spiritual intelligence is just pure rational. There are no gods and goddesses. There are no nature spirits and no, nothing from magic or mythic stages at all. He's just flat out giving a very, very reasonable, rational explanation of a path of waking up. And then he says, now you have to go do that. You have to go wake up. Um, But he explains it completely in in rational uh, terms. Now, of course, what's happened subsequently is that because everybody is born at square one. Even today, if you had a society that was a completely integral society, everybody in that society would still be born at square one. And so not only would they have to go through stages of waking up if they wanted to become enlightened, they'd have to go through stages of growing up if they want to be truly uh, inclusive and truly uh, um, holistic in the best sense, truly um, comprehensive. And so because of that, you'll have people that are still at an early archaic or at a magic or at a mythic stage and when they find something like buddhism even though the founder was at a rational stage and even though it's explained at a rational stage they'll still interpret it according to what stage they're at they they don't have any choice Um, this is simply the tools we have and how we use them and nobody can sort of jump out of their skin and if they're at magic sort of have a peak experience and start interpreting things in a pluralistic fashion Um, so what it does mean though is that there's some profoundly important information in this path of growing up and um i maintain that again if this was known at the time that that the great religions were were first recording this they would have jumped all over it And the great religions would would include um, a path that not only helped people wake up, it would help them grow up. And they, I mean, especially even something like Buddhism. Buddhism is probably the most psychological uh, religion on the face of the planet. And all they did is, um, I tend to joke about Tibet and say that technologically, they barely got up to yak butter. (laughs) but they spent a thousand years in caves looking at their minds and it's just uh, one of the most staggeringly sophisticated and brilliant uh, meditative systems that you can find uh, Mm -hmm. anywhere. They would have been all over this so fast Um, and particularly just even seeing data um, like Fowler's or the data that that you have when uh, in a book, Integral Psychology, i had charts of over a hundred different developmental models that I did a meta-analysis on um, to arrive at at the general uh, characteristics of these major levels of altitude or levels of, of um, development. And what's so astonishing when you see all of these models put together is is just how much there are these broad similarities. And so. You can sort of summarize it by saying that um, most of the models uh, uh, in developmental psychology have around six to eight or so um, major stages of development. And again, these stages apply to all of our multiple intelligences, and including our spiritual intelligence. And so this is clearly something that um, is a central issue of our own spiritual. Um, development and particularly if we look at the west and we just look at just these processes of waking up and the processes of growing up we can see two major major problems with religion as it exists and in today's western world and these problems are probably why only 11% of Northern Europe, for example, um, is churched or actually believes uh, mm-hmm. any form of Western religion. But one of the problems is we lost waking up. It, it just, um, when Christianity started, it was a wash in mystical experience. Um, I mean, you couldn't turn around without running into a white dove. Uh, frames going around your head or, I mean, it, it was just deeply, deeply, uh, mystical and it stayed that way for about the first three centuries or so. And then as the church started to, to gain more power and, and to sort of take over, um, the whole of Christianity in a sense, um, they became very uncomfortable with this whole, uh, mystical kind of stuff, um, because mystical experiences have a nasty habit of going, uh, it's like sunlight, goes straight from the sun to you, and it it bypasses uh, the church. And since, according to the church, quote, nobody comes to salvation except by way of Mother Church, then they started to switch more over to how you thought about Spirit, In other words, over to spiritual intelligence and switching over to growing up. And what they did there is make dogmatic the stage of spiritual intelligence that uh, a large percentage of the original um, disciples of Christ and the original writers of the New Testament were at. And that was the mythic literal stage of development. And so that became uh, dogma. For the church, and so previously, what would happen if you wanted to become a Christian is you'd actually uh, look for a teacher, you'd seek out a teacher who had become uh, awakened, and the word they used was sanctus, sanctified, and so you'd find a teacher who was who was sanctus, awakened, enlightened, sanctified, and you'd study with them a year or two until you yourself had an awakening a waking up experience. And then you could continue to study with that teacher or go on and, and find other teachers and, and so on. But it, but the core of it was was really a waking up. And, and exactly the way I quoted uh, St. Paul, let this consciousness be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. And the experience of that oneness was a profound waking up. And, and that's what Christianity started out about. But about three centuries into it, As the church has now shifted over to things like um, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and it's just a list of mythic, literal things that you have to believe if you want to be a Christian. So you have to believe that Jesus is the one and only um, biological son of the one and only God. He was born of a biological version. Um, He had all these uh, miracles that he accomplished in his life, and he was... um, Dad, resurrected three days later, actually um, went up and and, uh, and and went into heaven. And so if you wanted to become a Christian at that time, maybe you'd walk into like the bishop's office and say, I want to become a Christian. they say, okay, um, read this paper, and you'd read the uh, 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 Nicene Creed or, or whatnot. And they say, okay, now sign on the bottom line if you can agree with all of that. And they say, say, okay, so you sign on the bottom line, now you're a Christian. So waking up is gone. It's just not there right. anymore. And so what we've got is just a spiritual intelligence and one of the lower levels of development of that. So all we have is a mythic literal dogma. And you're supposed to believe that and if you believe that, then you're a Christian. So there's no waking up. And almost as bad, there are no higher levels of spiritual growing up so we don't even have pluralistic or integral stages of development um so that so you're actually drawing on the highest widest deepest um levels of development of of spiritual intelligence so so given those two um disasters of of um religion in the modern West, you can start to see there, you know, there's so many problems with it. And particularly when you get, you know, people like the new atheists, um, Dokken, uh, yeah, Dawkins and Hitchens and Sam Harris and all that, uh, all they're doing is attacking the mythic literal dogma. Um, they're not attacking waking up. As a matter of fact, Sam Harris practices that, and he's actually written a book called Waking Up, Spirituality right. Without Religion. Um, And so that's, uh, which is fine, Um, but what we're stuck with is this dogmatic, mythic, literal um, religion. And that is just on the face of it, that's just a disaster. Um, And it doesn't really do um, almost anything that spirituality is supposed to do for you. Spirituality one is supposed to help you wake up. So you find out um, what your you know, true self and, and ultimate ground of being is. And number two, it's supposed to give an interpretive explanation for that that happens to fit with other information and, and uh, uh, knowledge that we have about the world. That would certainly include, you know, fitting with other truths from science, for example. Um, and yet we have none of that. And so that really is um, a disaster. So my whole point about um, a religion of tomorrow is that if religion in the West is going to continue uh, into the future in any authentic and legitimate way, then at the very least, it's going to have to include um, a genuine waking up and a full-fledged growing up. Right. So that's, that's uh, kind of a quick overview. We can go to, into any part of that you'd, you'd, uh, you'd like to, um, but it's, it's a significant uh, series of, of, uh, of um, suggestions, basically.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic, and it really does help us see what we need to integrate to move forward. And, right. and so, you know, most of the people listening to this are integral practitioners and right. people who understand themselves to be, you know, working in this new territory past postmodernism. And right. it, it, it really struck me that in your book, you, you and I've actually talked about this before, that we went from a world, a mythic world where God was everywhere right. to a modern world where God is nowhere. Right. And I noticed in your book you talk about as we move into the integral and post integral stages, God comes back online again.
1: It's true. And that's, what's, that's going to be a very interesting time because if you do go back, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, particularly as we were starting from archaic and, and, and into magic and, and even, even into mythic, God literally was everywhere. Uh, there just was no such thing as an atheistic tribe or, you know, an agnostic tribe. I mean, everybody believed in some sort of spirit somewhere, either volcano spirit or river spirit or grace spirit, uh, some sort of God or goddess or... Uh, elemental uh, nature spirit and then of course we had the whole axial period um, starting uh, about uh, uh, a thousand years before the Common Era. Um, and there, of course, it, it, it was the great monotheistic traditions uh, in the West and, and the great non-dual uh, traditions in, in the East. But God was still pretty much everywhere. And then as we get into Renaissance and then in, into the Enlightenment, what was happening was that in our growing up, we were moving from mythic literal to rational. And, and that's exactly what the modern Western Enlightenment was, uh, was characterized as. Um, it's it actually called the Age of Reason. And, and that's exactly what it did. And so it got rid of any of the sort of old mythic literal notions of God. And so it wasn't tracking waking up at all. And it wasn't doing that because religion itself um, was kind of careful about uh, waking up. Um, The church in particular, like I said, was was very touchy about the whole topic of mystical experience, and especially when you have an experience of being one with spirit. Mm -hmm. That's where it got very, very tricky uh, because if you didn't state that very carefully, then the Spanish Inquisition would have a little chat with you and explain why you were not experiencing the Spirit directly. Only Jesus did that. Right. So let's you know, get straight about that. So, so waking up what, what wasn't too much to be worried about. But of course, the whole mythic literal dogma was front and center. And that's exactly what the rational stage of, of development looked at and said, well, that's just hogwash. And so, so the whole notion that God is dead, <laughs> literally. Uh, I, I mean, it, you know, it's described to Nietzsche, but it was a whole era that basically said, right, and what it meant was the mythic god is dead. And and for the leading edge, it was. Right. I mean, that was just sort of it. Um, there, was, there was no mythic god that any intelligent person um, believed in. And this was a very, very difficult time for humanity. I mean, they, they lost their god. Uh, and there were uh, just you know hand wrenching and and wailing, and it was uh, well if we don 't have God, then you know anything is 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 permitted uh, there won 't be any morality left which is it 's going to be a nightmare and that went on um, for the better part of of a century or two, and it still uh, can cause problems <coughs> for people in today 's world right. but if you look at virtually any of the developmental models that track uh, human growth and development and particularly the sort of leading edge ones that um, track possible higher stages of development beyond the stages that are generally recognized by most other uh, models of development. Uh, Almost every single leading edge model has two or three stages um, beyond the highest personal stage and those are all transversal. Those all are transrational. They have. They would be described in, in terms that are indeed spiritual, um, but not in a in a magic or mythic sense. They really are magic and mythic are pre-rational, pre-logical. This is truly transrational. It, it it's completely capable of rationality and logic. Um, it just also it, it goes beyond that. And so what we start to see. And Ken, this is in those, the
0: integral, as we get into the integral stages, correct?
1: Yeah, integral and uh, what I sometimes just call uh, super integral, okay. the third tier. Um, and, and so what um, what's happening there is that, in a sense, now God is back. And since these are actual stages of development, then it means, uh, right now, in order to have uh, any sort of sort of satori experience or, or contemplative tradition, you actually have to take up meditation. Um, now, people will, uh, sometimes spontaneously have a peak experience if they're out in nature, or, you know, listening to music or making love or something like that. So that can uh, happen. But any sort of permanent acquisition of a higher um, state realization, you have to voluntarily take up practice. And you have to do meditation for you know several years uh, in order to gain any sort of uh, permanent type of, of access to those, to those higher states. But as those higher states are actually becoming part of our higher structure development, then that means that those states will simply come with the territory. So right now, when somebody is born, they don't have to work hard in order to get to rationality. If they just keep growing and, you know, keep experiencing stuff, they'll end up unfolding, you know, pretty much, uh, starting in adolescence. They'll, they'll be able to think rationally. It just, it shows up. It's an inherent stage of development. Um, and, and so, um, it's not something that you have to, you know, take up a voluntary practice for, um, to get. Um, so, As higher structure stages start to become transpersonal, then that means that just as a, all you have to do is keep growing and you're going to be introduced into these broader transpersonal, transrational uh, states of awareness.
0: And you're going to be pulled into them because everybody around you is there.
1: That's right, and it's just it's an inherent um stage of development that you'll go through if you keep growing right, and so at some point those are going to become quite common. I mean, hell, you know five hundred years from now, people will be going through third tier when they're you know ten years old mm-hmm. um, so um it's just it's just coming this way. Uh, and, and it's not something that, that we have to, like we do today, we actually have to get in some sort of generally meditative uh, practice group uh, and then you know work for a year or two to get some sort of uh, awakening or enlightenment experience. Um, but it looks like um, that's going to become a fairly um, common and to be expected type of experience uh, in in um, coming um, evolutionary times mm-hmm. so uh, we went well, we've gone from uh, God is everywhere to God is nowhere to God is everywhere again
0: yeah well you talk about things like super mental super conscious that you have distinctions in this territory that I think our listeners would like to hear understand uh,
1: right? sure um, well, what starts to happen, um, particularly as, as we move um, from first tier, which um, represents, uh, as I conceive it anyway, um, it represents the first sort of five or six major uh, stages of development. And one of the common definitions of a first tier stage is that Each first-tier stage thinks that its truth and values are the only real truth and values in existence. And everybody else is confused or goofy or infantile uh, or just plain wrong. And then um, what Claire Grace called a monumental leap of meaning, which is moving from first-tier into second-tier, is that what uh, starts to happen at second-tier is that in cognitive terms at least, all of the differentiations that were made in first tier, such as with the green pluralistic stage of development, um, green can differentiate all of these uh, entities, but it couldn't integrate them. And that's what happens with a leap to second tier all of a sudden, it's second tier with a cognitive capacity we call vision logic. It can integrate all of the partialities that were first differentiated at first tier. And so that's why you start to get most of the developmentalists that found some of these second tier stages actually call them terms like systemic or integrated or integral or uh, you know uh, holistic, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, because that's what actually happens. And so there are a couple of stages in uh, second tier, Um, and you can, uh, again, tiers, what you call first tier, what you call second tier, are completely arbitrary. Um, Stages actually exist, stages are, are what is really there, but how you group them and um generally, developmentalists, if they find a series of stages that have something in common, then they'll often call those a tier, and then the next set of stages that have something in common, then that'll be a tier. Now, it turns out that each stage in development, starting with stage one, is more integral than its previous stage. So, uh, you know, so what we call integral is really very relative in that sense. Um, the highest general stage that I tend to recognize now, um, I call the following Aurobindo, uh supermind. And technically, that would be the integral stage, that would be Mm -hmm. the integral stage. Um, But because second tier starts to integrate things in a way that first tier doesn't and because it becomes very noticeable to developmentalists um, when they're doing research and and, and they run into a second tier stage and its capacity for holism and comprehensiveness and, and inclusion and so on is so striking. Uh, that we just go ahead and refer to second tier in general as as integral uh, stages, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's third tier. And third tier is where um, it's common, uh, for example, uh, in it, somebody who's in in the uh, highest stage of, of second tier, which we call uh, turquoise or or um, advanced centaur or advanced vision logic. Um, it, it's common for a person at turquoise to say, uh, the, "the the planet is a single organism with one mind." Uh, it, it's that kind of uh, sort of integral uh, kind of kind of uh, orientation. But when you get to third tier, the sort of the first step in the third tier, um, which I call paramind. Um, you'll actually experience being one with that planetary consciousness. Hmm. So it's a direct, you can have a direct kind of uh, nature, mysticism type of uh, experience. And that's what we tend to find in third tier is, is they tend to be mystical states, uh, but now they're actually structures that are including these states, they're not just states themselves, mm-hmm. um, because the states themselves can, can still be experienced in virtually any of the structure stages. And this is something we call the Wilber Combs Lattice, and it was a, it was a big, big uh, breakthrough. It was the understanding, like we were talking about earlier, that you could um, have a very profound waking up experience, but you could be at almost any level of growing up. Um, these are two independent things. Mm-hmm. And this is a big, big breakthrough in terms of our understanding because it, it let us see, well, how simply you could have mystics who had had very profound enlightenment experiences, but were still hom- homophobic or uh, racist or sexist or, you know, whatnot. They yeah, uh, so could still be at an ethnocentric stage and as we get into third tier these all tend to have a transpersonal type of uh, component to them and they all have an emphasis on um, a kind of awareness of awareness and so one of the things that's happening is you just track development overall the growing up component of development is that each stage transcends and includes the previous stage. And so consciousness is in a sense getting stronger and stronger. And it's also becoming sort of more and more detached from its identity um, with the particular level. Mm -hmm. So when you're at the earlier levels, of magic or mythic or so-called impulsive or power stages i mean you pretty much identified with those i mean when you describe yourself you're going to describe yourself using the terms of of those levels um by the time you get to second tier a guy named james broughton did a study of what he called sort of metaphysical uh stages of development and at second tier he tracked it from first tier there's uh, the earliest stages is you identified with your body, and then in the upper reaches of first tier, you tend to start disidentifying with your body, and you start identifying with your mind. Hmm. And then when you get to second tier, he described that as quote both mind and body are experiences of an integrated self. So so you can see that there's this kind of nete nete the sort of disidentification. And if you look at the uh, great chain of being using uh, typical Christian terms, it goes from matter to body, to mind, to soul, to spirit. Mm -hmm. And what we see in typical growing up development is you first start out and you're identified with matter. And that's what happens in about the first year of life. An infant can't distinguish its material body from the material environment. And that's the state of fusion. It lasts in a very strong way about four months. Um, And then as you start to differentiate and then you're no longer identified with the material world, now you're identified with your body. And now you go through the impulsive stages and and, um, self-protective stages and all of that. The mind starts to emerge more and more. You get uh, symbols and concepts and rules start to emerge. And so you disidentify with the body and you identify with the mind. And as you continue growing and developing, and you start to move towards the soul, then you disidentify with the body and the mind. And those are now both sort of objective uh, experiences, as Keegan summarized it, um, and actually the same phrase I use in, in that one project, uh, but the subject of one uh, stage of development becomes the object of the subject of the next stage of development.
0: So now I can see my mind.
1: Exactly. And so as that continues, then you're actually, and you say, okay, well, what's the self when you're doing that? And James Broughton, of course, not really familiar with a lot of the mystical traditions. He simply called it an integrated self, because that's sort of how uh, the people that he was studying in his research, that's sort of how they described it. But you could just as easily see it as being the beginning experience of their soul uh because they've they've gone from matter to body to mind and what they have left is soul and spirit and so as they move into third tier their actual self is is now very much what what you could call soul and the soul is that part of yourself that uh transcends uh individual um body mind and if you want to get um, a little bit far out, uh, the traditions would maintain, most of them would maintain, that where the um, ego is the self you have throughout one lifetime, the soul is the self that you have through various lifetimes. So whether you go that far or not, the soul is starting to become very close to a sort of witness. So it, it, it's aware of matter. It's aware of body. It's aware of mind. And it's not yet aware of itself. Uh, that would happen, um, as it got to the very highest of third tier, uh, starting with overmind and supermind. And that would be a shift in the self from the soul to spirit. And that means spirit as realized in your own awareness. Um, and so those are structure stages of development. They're not just states of development. You can have a state experience of subtle or causal or turia witnessing or turiyatita non-dual. According to the Wolvercombs lattice, you can have an experience of any one of those states all the way to the highest at virtually any one of the levels of growing up, any one of the structures of growing up. But what we're seeing in third tier is an actual structural uh, awakening of those dimensions. Hmm. So they become not just states, states tend to be temporary. They tend to come a while, uh, stay and leave, but structures are fairly permanent. I mean, by the time you reach, just for example, uh, orange rationality, you pretty much have access to that whenever you want it. Um, and so that's what structures are like. Um, and you can't peak experience structures if you're at moral stage two, you can't peak experience moral stage six. In all, almost any state, you can peak experience any higher state. You can be in, in just a gross state, and you can peak experience subtle, causal, turia, and turiatita. And it happens all the time, actually. Um, but not structures. So those are more, you know, this is what our future evolution mm-hmm. is going to look like. So <laughs> if, if, if we keep going, if we don't blow ourselves up or completely destroy the biosphere, which are both very possible, um, then we're going to actually get societies that are built around the organizing principles of the subtle soul. Just as today, most Western cultures are built around organizing principles of orange rationality and green pluralism, uh, and, they, and they, they've been uh, built around orange rationality since the Western Enlightenment, about 200 years, and then starting in the 1960s, when green pluralistic stage started to emerge, then we got a whole shift in cultural values That moved from the orange, rational, uh, with particular emphasis on freedom, to green, multicultural, with a particular emphasis on equality. And freedom and equality are not the same. So equality, for example, is very willing to interrupt free speech if it hurts the feelings of minorities.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Orange would never do that. Orange would just scream, no, free speech, you, that's, that's sacrosanct. You, you, you can't take that away. Green will take it away at the blink of a hat. Um, likewise, um, Orange would say when it comes to like, um, men and women uh, getting paid the same in work, you want to make sure that they have equal opportunity. Well, Green doesn't like equal opportunity. It wants equal outcome. So it'll claim that if you just let it go and let the free market decide, that men will still get selected and pay more than women will. So it's just not going to be fair. So what we have to do is we have to mandate uh, equality uh, legally. And, and, and that's what it tends to do. So that that's where uh, a lot of the culture war battles today come from, is orange freedom fighting green equality and both of them fighting a mythic, <laughs> literal religion. Right. Those are the three major yeah. values in the in the culture war: uh, amber, mythic, orange, rational, and green, pluralistic or or equality. But what will start happening at the next stage is it will start to get a soul uh, organizing principle, and that will. Uh, determine uh, in the same way that previous cultures were determined by um, a magic um, uh, organizing regime or a mythic organizing regime, or then a rational organizing regime, and then a green pluralistic organizing regime will have a soul organizing regime. And that will actually start to impact the kinds of decisions that the leading edge of culture thinks is important to embody in culture. So when that happened with the rational stage during the Western Enlightenment, that's when we got, just for example, the end of slavery, because we were at world-centric stages of morality. Whereas the previous stage, the mythic stage, was ethnocentric. And that's why even though we had great religions that had profound waking up experiences, they were still interpreting it at ethnocentric stages where slavery is fine. That's why not a single major religion objected to slavery. If you can imagine. And so only 200 years ago, when we actually moved to a world-centric, rational, universal stage of development, then in a 100-year period, from around 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed on every rational industrial country on the face of the planet. First time anything like that had ever happened. And that's because the rational, world-centric principles were organizing the culture. And therefore, when they found somebody who was a slave, that was profoundly objectionable. In a way, it never was in all of our previous history. And then likewise, when Green hit the scene in the 60s, then we got the civil rights movement, we got the environmental movement, we got personal and professional feminism, all of these looking for equality, which is what made it so distinctive. And then what will start happening when soul becomes an organizing principle is notions having to do with a transpersonal center of gravity. Notions having to do with um, uh, some sort of transcendental source of uh, a ground of being or a genuine uh, divine reality, but now one that truly is transpersonal and transrational, and, and there will actually be an effort to distinguish a transrational God from a pre-rational magic and mythic God. Right. And those will be understood to be a little bit problematic. We'll also understand that everybody has to go through those stages. See, so you, you can't simply outlaw them. But you do have to control their behavior because that ethnocentric, sorry, you can no longer burn witches in the public square. I, I know you'd like to, but you can't. <laughs> right. so it's just not allowed. So we have to control behavior from a lot of those pre-world-centric stages, particularly magic and mythic, um, because they lead to real problems like slavery and sexism and racism and, you know... I, pretty much name it, and the real disaster in all of this is that as a culture, probably because we're still first tier, but we pay no attention whatsoever to interiors. Most college professors, most people in academia had no idea, they don't know anything about the stages of development that every one of their multiple intelligences goes through had just no idea that there's magic mythic rational pluralistic integral stages of growth and development and that things change dramatically as you go through those stages it's just not understood and so a whole lot of the problems that we have in society are problems that come from some of the very earliest stages of development so dominator hierarchies for example Only people on lower levels of a growth hierarchy even want to use dominator hierarchies. But they do want to use them. So Magic and Mythic just loves dominator hierarchies. And so that's where you get caste system and also criminal organizations and all sorts of um, things that, that are truly unpleasant. And those, the only cure for people... Who want to use dominator hierarchies is to get them to move to a higher level on a cross hierarchy. When you get into world-centric and pluralistic stages, there's no way, for example, that somebody at a world universal stage of moral development would ever get involved in something like a Holocaust. Right. It, it, it's simply not possible. Um, somebody at an orange universal morality treat all people fairly regardless of race color sex or creed it's not going to be going around committing genocide somebody ethnocentric will be glad to and yet right there you can see how important those interior stages are to the real social problems that we have on this planet and how do we handle it we completely ignore the interiors we pretend they're not even there so we're, we're guaranteed to not get the major cause of these problems. One well, of the problems with global warming <laughs> is that 60 to 70% of the population is at lower than world-centric stages of development. Right. So it's, it's not even something that can be well-conceived at a at a uh, red or amber magic or mythic stage and those people don't even think global warming is real so of course that's why we're not doing anything about it because 67 percent of the population doesn't get it right and and the real problem is we don't track that We, we we don't think about that we have no way of understanding that um one of the things um in my own sort of science fiction vision of the future is that when we actually ever get to a point where we can use use brain imaging to get a relatively accurate take on where a person's general center of gravity is in their growing up so that we could actually um, understand. uh, And there would be nothing wrong. with people understanding that oh this person is it red or this person is it amber or this person is it orange this person is it green the same way we'd say now somebody has a high school education or somebody has a college education or somebody has a graduate degree or something like that there wouldn't be any stigma attached to it we'd understand that you know everybody is, is moving through this whole overall spectrum of of uh, development. Um, but it would let us have an understanding of exactly how a lot of our social problems are being generated by levels of development that are at some of their more impure, um, less complete, less mature stages of development. And as it is right now, we don't even take that into account. And it's a disaster. It's really a disaster.
0: Well, that brings me to a question that's maybe a little bit out of left field, but a little bit topical. Uh, It's an age-old question on the nature of evil. But, you know, we just experienced this shooter. Right. You know, he he systematically went and quite intentionally uh, perpetrated this mayhem on innocent people. Right. you wonder: Is evil a thing? Is it an ontological? Is it impersonal? Is how do you see this, Ken? How do right. you explain this?
1: Right. Well, if you look at, um, well, you take probably um, the item that in in, in the modern world. Um, probably came the closest to uh, replacing God, um, meaning it was an item that we saw operating everywhere that had a hand to say in almost everything that we do and is, is omnipresent and um, um, constantly um, acting in order to produce the realities that we're aware of. And I'm talking about evolution. Mm-hmm. So evolution is, in a sense, um, sort of the closest thing that, that the modern world has to some sort of, of ultimate spirit. And if you actually sort of look at evolution, something like being spirit in action, and then you take you know people like Orbindo or even Theosophy, um, spiritual organizations that looked at what they call involution and evolution involution just to keep using the Christian uh, mystic terms of the great chain uh is spirit goes out of itself to create soul then soul goes out of itself steps down to create mind then mind goes out of itself steps down creates even a lesser version of itself called living body and then body goes out of itself steps down produces insentient matter and at that point the whole universe blows into existence with a big bang and that's involution the movement of the higher through the lower and that's where, where all of those dimensions come from it ultimately come from from spirit and so then after matter has blown into existence then it starts to evolve back to spirit <laughs> and just in those very broad uh terms so there's not like when mind was produced it didn't produce like a whole series of philosophies and stuff so that when mind then starts to evolve or emerge then whole philosophies come you know ready formed with it and all that this is just this broad sort of morphogenetic field um, stretching over this broad spectrum from the highest to the very lowest, very densest. Hmm. And there's sort of an energetic spectrum that goes with that so that as we move up and we start to evolve in material form, then the more complex the material form, the more consciousness it has and the more consciousness it has the cellular the energy component is that goes with it. Um, and, and these are all you know, fairly standard things uh, that you can get from uh, a kind of perennial philosophy um, overview um, but what it does tend to mean is that on the one hand everything including the very lowest level of all dead insentient sentient matter is still spirit as matter in other words it's still made of spirit ultimately even though it's sort of the lowest form of spirit so to speak and what we find in, in any sort of evolutionary sequence, and, and that applies to when evolution starts showing up in humans, then it shows up as these developmental sequences in both our states and our structures, and in other words, all of our multiple intelligences, uh, when they develop, they're their undergoing evolution. And part of that evolution is simply... Um, recapitulating the stages that have already evolved to date. Those all get enfolded in this big morphogenetic field that holds all these things, Um, whether it's the Akashic Record, the like Lankavatara Sutra um, calls them bhasanas. They're sort of collective unconscious uh, factors that store all of our previous actions, and so they're all uh, made available. But what we're finding is that even even though every stage of human development is a stage of spirit, nonetheless they're sort of lowest forms of spirit are the earliest stages and then as we continue to grow and develop and evolve then our consciousness gets greater and greater it continues to transcend and include transcend and include and so you start to move into higher and higher levels of development and these are also levels that are in a sense more spirit although everything is spirit um you get it gets more uh obvious more apparent um as evolution continues to grow so on the one hand if you look at the really earliest stages of evolution and um ones that are um, either completely insentient or just barely start to introduce life um and then ones that start to just Uh, the very first forms of mind start to emerge like a dog can form images uh, for example but at that stage it really is very much well a dog-eat-dog world those stages including in humans um, what uh, Maslow and Lovinger call safety and self protective and other developmentalists have called those stages uh, power driven and they're egocentric almost all developmentalists still refer to those stages as, as egocentric. So it's an egocentric power driven stage, which in essence means uh, stay out of my way. I'll do anything I need to, to get what I want, including mm-hmm. if I have to killing you. And most people would say that's evil. And in a certain sense, it, it certainly, um, it certainly is, 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 uh, is up there, um, for, um, for winning that kind of, um, label. Um, but the point is that as evolution continues, then those levels themselves in a sense, get less and less evil. They start to become more self-aware and then they start to take the role of other. And when they take the role of other then morality switches from selfish to care. So now, when I'm caring for others, that certainly seems less evil than just when I'm a power-driven selfish toad. And yet you can still, at, at an ethnocentric level, you can still act in really horridly immoral ways, ways that also would probably be called evil, like the Holocaust, for example. That, that, that's the essence of ethnocentric production. It's still spirit, but it's spirit slumbering. It's not spirit awakened to its true universal um, capacities. That doesn't happen till orange uh, universal stages of, uh, of development. And it's at those stages that you start to things like the universal rights of men and women. That became a predominant drive of the Western Enlightenment. It wasn't okay, what do you get if you're Catholic or what do you get if you're Jewish or what do you get if if, if you're this or that? It's what do you get for being a human being? You, Everybody has the same fundamental rights of being a human being. And at that point, you can really start to say that that, that puts a, a, a huge debt in evil precisely because it's got... It's more expansive. It's including more perspectives. It's consciousness has gotten larger and wider and more enveloping, more embracing, in fact, more loving. And that's something that you do see happen with these stages of development. Um, one thing is extremely noticeable. and This is actually how Howard Gardner defines development. Um, he said development is decreasing egocentrism. Mm-hmm. And it's true enough. Another way is it's increasing love. Gilligan already did it with increasing care. Same thing. Mm-hmm. So love gets greater and greater and greater, and your selfish, narcissistic, egocentric drives get less and less and less. And until you get to some of the further reaches of these developmental sequences and you have a direct spiritual realization. And the person at that point tends to, you know, rather radiate a kind of um, all-embracing love and care and compassion. Uh, And these certainly are items that the world's religions emphasize. But what's so interesting about looking at the world's religions is that even though most of them claim that they are the largest source of love and compassion of anything in the world. It's also historically true that they're the greatest source of war, torture, and terror of any other human action. And the question is almost like how can that how can it be both of those? How can it be the greatest source of torture and, and warfare and the greatest source of love And and compassion. The answer is the degree of growing up. When it's at lower egocentric, ethnocentric stages, it's jihad. The fundamental attitude of ethnocentric stage is jihad. And yet when you get into world-centric and higher stages, that's a fundamental love and care. And so religions were correct about both of those. It just depended exactly on on the degree of growing up that a particular religious uh, body tends to manifest. Mm
0: -hmm. That's
1: what determines whether it's loving or whether it really does start to get into something that could could very well be called evil. But men and women aren't, well, I was gonna say they're not born evil. In a sense, they're born evil, but they have an inherent capacity to grow out of it into good. And so goodness is inherent in human beings, even though they're born, and I mean even studies today still show kids are born, they're racist, they're sexist. They're, I mean, it's just, it's not pretty. <laughs> um, and until we can actually you know, start to take the role of other, uh, can we start to actually treat others as ourselves, which of course is a, one of the basic definitions of love and one of the primary religious um, commandments that, that that we get from from the great traditions.
0: So the the move then is as we sort of kick off into this religion of tomorrow is this realization of evolution that we can participate in that by realizing it uh, in all of these categories in, in terms of waking up, State stages, growing up, right. structure stages, uh, right. cleaning up and showing up. Right. And that when we include all of those, that's worthy of calling that a religion of tomorrow.
1: Well, indeed. And it's kind of hard to um, imagine, uh, given given the, the sort of the genuine value that you find in um, these, essentially, these developmental sequences are, in essence, evolutionary sequences. I mean, the, 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 almost all of them are the direct result of evolution itself. And 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 if we do sort of look at evolution as spirit in action, uh, then we can start to see why, in a sense, uh, attempting to, to develop in, in, uh, in, as, as much as you can in things like growing up and waking up is, in a sense, a form of religious activity. Yeah. You, you are following spirit in action when you
0: do that. Well, I always thought that evolution itself, um, which is, of course, delivered to us by science, by rationality, this understanding of the world uh, blowing out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago, and, right. and turning from, you know, gas and subatomic par- particles to, you know, our modern world. I mean, that's astonishing. That's jaw-dropping. That's, it that's, is. A, that's a religious realization. And that, that well, continues. It, it is.
1: And, and it's um, one of the, you know, strange things about it is that, you know, it's only this sort of hard-headed kind of Western scientific materialism um that that wouldn't start looking at something like evolution uh in terms of of its of its genuinely spiritual uh dimensions now of course for that to happen you have to get rid of a very difficult roadblock which is that god is a mythic literal thing because if that's what you're going to think about then it's not going to work because god is no more as a myth uh jehovah is just like zeus or apollo or santa claus or the tooth fairy i mean that's what mythic literal means it it doesn't mean a ground of all being it doesn't mean something like you know evolution or spirit and action or anything like that so part of the the difficulty the understandable part of why Western science is loath to do that kind of stuff is that we don't have very uh, we don't have a good history of conveying what we mean by spirit very well, mm-hmm. um, and, and so that's always been a problem. But then, if you look at people that have have looked at at, at evolution um, carefully, and I don't mean just people like Teilhard de Chardin, but generally speaking. Um, the person that's sort of universally maintained to be America's greatest philosophical genius, uh, Charles uh, Peirce. It's spelled Peirce, but it's pronounced Peirce. He was a a, a, a contemporary of William James, and uh, he sort of invented pragmatism, which James uh, sort of picked up. Um, Peirce didn't like the way James was using pragmatism, so he changed its name to pragmatism. He said, a name so ugly as to discourage theft. <laughs> um, but, but he, if you look at his, uh, he's considered a brilliant logician um, and made a lot of really um, profound uh, additions to the whole philosophical canon. And if you look at how he looked at evolution, he saw uh, three major forces driving it. And one was chance, which is sort of like chance mutations kind of thing, which sort of standard Darwinism accepts. And then one is necessity or causal um, determination, which standard Darwinism also accepts. But then the third one, which tied everything together, he called evolutionary love. And it was evolutionary love that drives the whole show. And he says you just can't get it otherwise it won't work right. and it won't by the way um, I've been saying this for 40 years uh, and I'm still by the way criticized for not following Dawkins I mean Frank Visser criticizes me for the, every chance he gets right. so he should read Purse. Uh, it, it's <laughs> evolutionary love is exactly what's driving it and so that's what's so astonishing is that we can you know, really start to think through once we sort of clear out our notions of spirituality from being infected, although totally understandable and it was the way things looked way back when. But when we clear out the sort of magic, superstitious aspects of spirituality, and we clear out the sort of mythic, mythic, literal aspects of spirituality. We still have a spiritual intelligence that's moving through rational and pluralistic and integral stages. And each of those is going to look at spirit from their own higher perspective. And so given that all of the developmental sequences that we've been talking about, including growing up and and waking up, given that those are a form of evolution and given that evolution is spirit in action then of course when you're working on your own development then you're actually undertaking a spiritual endeavor and 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 that's exactly how at some point we will hopefully start to interpret it that way and and we'll get over the old interpretations of Jehovah is, you know, the white-haired gentleman on a throne in the sky, Jesus Christ on his right hand, and Abraham and Moses on his left hand, all of that, Um, and and start to get into these much more sophisticated, rational, and pluralistic, and integral and third-tier interpretations of spirit. And when something like that starts to happen, and given the benefits that you get from things like growing up and waking up. I mean, would you really like to live a life where you didn't grow up and you didn't wake up? I mean, if you think about it, that's just a horrifying thought. Well, as that becomes more obvious, then the religions of tomorrow are gonna have a bit of a comeback. Yeah. And there would be reasons for, you know, Northern Europeans um, to get more than 11% of them engaging in some form of, of spiritual developmental uh, practice of growing up and waking up and cleaning up and showing up. And it would just be too, the positives would be too positive and, and would be too obvious and would be very clear to anybody who got engaged in this so that you'd really be missing out on something if you weren't engaging in ways to grow up and to wake up and clean up and, and and show up i mean you would really look at a life that didn't have that and if you said to somebody they haven't grown up they haven't uh, woken up they haven't uh, cleaned up they, they do not even show up that wouldn't be something that you would want to emulate that that would be looked upon as pretty close to a disaster of a life and so that means there really is something and spirituality that could have a deep and profound meaning for the human race other than the dogmatic mythic literal childishness that it has now and there's every reason that something like that would happen simply because even if we completely get rid of all that mythic literal dogma and and so on we're going to continue ourselves developing we're going to continue evolving. We're going to continue growing up, and we're going to continue waking up. And there's no reason we wouldn't start to actually recognize that. And when we do, it's it's a different ballgame. Yeah. It's a whole other world.
0: Wow. Ken, you have uh, charted the way, my dear man. Uh, bless uh, you. Yeah, so appreciate it. Uh, and thank you so much for uh, spending this time with us today. And, um, and most of all, for this magnificent new book, uh, The Religion of Tomorrow, A Vision for the Future of the Great Traditions, Ken Wilber. Thank you again, uh, Ken. Bless you, my friend. All right. Talk okay. to you soon. Bye-bye. Much love.